Welcome to Twilled Week in Health Law, the Ryan Care podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on March 20th, 2017. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, joined by my co-host whose confirmation hearings, although delayed by 13 months, are now going really well. Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. This week on Twill, we welcome back Professor Nicholas Bagley, who teaches and writes in the areas of administrative law, regulatory theory, and health law, usually at the University of Michigan Law School. But recently, uh, he's been working at the World Health Organization in Switzerland. Nick is an extraordinary scholar with a great knack for keying in on the most important developments in our space. He joins us from Switzerland. So, bonsoir, Nick. Thank you so much, Nick. I'm really happy to be here. Wonderful. Well, uh, these remain fascinating times. We're still unsure as to exactly what's going on. Back in February, uh, the Yale Law Journal published uh, a great essay you wrote, Federalism and the End of Obamacare. Now, as we record this episode, the American Health Care Act, Trump Care if it passes, uh, Ryan Care if not, has not yet been voted on. But if you follow its core proposals, there seems to be very much favoring a return to state regulation of healthcare, and obviously in its approach to Medicaid and undoing Medicaid expansion, uh, quite a dramatic shift in the way the federal government uh, will be funding healthcare. Yeah, well, look, the essay grew out of a question that had long niggled at me, which is, in our federal system, the presumption is that the states should take the lead unless there's a good reason for federal intervention. And, you know, when it comes to health reform, the typical justifications for federal intervention were not as obvious to me as they seem to appear to everyone else. And I also was a little bit, I, I suppose, nervous um, when I when I thought about, you know, why it is we need some kind of national health reform. Um, at the lopsided score when it came to states achieving near universal coverage at the state level. So, you know, when we talk about, and, and to be clearer about this, when we talk about the march to same-sex marriage, um, by the time the Supreme Court decides Obergefell against Hodges, the advocates in favor of same-sex marriage had won a lot of victories at the state court level, including 11 through popular referendums. So about 37 states at the time of Obergefell is decided allowed same-sex marriage. And it seemed at that point like a federal solution was politically possible. And in fact, uh, they managed to push it over the goal line at the Supreme Court. When it comes to health reform, the goal, the score was a lopsided 48 to 2. So Massachusetts had achieved near universal coverage and Hawaii some decades earlier had come close to the goal as well. But all the other efforts at the state level to achieve near universal coverage had gone down in flames. And that's true too of all the federal. Part of, some, part of me, some part of me wondered, you know, gosh, the Republicans have been claiming for so long that the American people simply don't support this health reform plan. You know, you can cherry pick poll numbers one way or the other. But the fact is that if the states hadn't moved forward uh, as a group, did that tell us something about the depth of political support that existed for health reform? And so strictly as a strategic matter, I, I kind of wondered about the, the decision to focus the efforts on the federal level. Um, and I was struck by just how little conversation these questions attracted during the debates over the Affordable Care Act. Um, and, I, you know, it occurred to me that if, in fact, the ACA was going the way of the dodo, which seems at least possible, that we might be back in a world where the states are going to be asked yet again to take the lead on health reform. And I wanted to know whether that was a tolerable state of affairs or whether there was something that, that ought to worry us about that. So I think looking from a grand array perspective on a rise and fall of a healthcare reform in the 21st century, uh, I think that's a really wise uh, angle on it, Nick. And I think certainly I have heard similar uh, sentiments from some real thought leaders in healthcare as well. Some other uh, real thought leaders in 
healthcare as well. And what I wanted to ask, though, is just thinking about the devil's advocate position. I imagine that many who were debating, if there were people debating this in the late George W. Bush administration, who were thinking about whether to go in the state or a federal direction, they might have thought that if we only go in a state direction, there's going to be this problem of undercutting, that states with uh, robust social welfare protections are going to end up being undercut in the business market by states that say, hey, come here. Uh, you don't have to cover your employees. Uh, you can just do a very cheap uh, labor model. And I'm wondering, you know, given especially that you uh, think both about international health care and uh, our domestic politics, does that analogy work? Or should we really be concerned about that potential race to the bottom effect? Or do you think there's something different when the states are within a federal entity as opposed to like international competition? No, I think the race to the bottom concern is certainly one that needs to be ventilated. And in fact, I talk about it in the paper. The concern is not typically that businesses will flee, although that could potentially be a response to an aggressive employer mandate if a state were to impose one. The bigger concern is actually that you'll see chronically ill and very sick people moving from one state to another to take advantage of the more uh, extravagant health options on offer. So if you're Massachusetts and you're thinking about expanding coverage, one argument you might raise against expanding would be that you'd attract all the sick people from the surrounding state. And as a theoretical justification, that's a perfectly sound one for federal intervention. If in fact states do not want to be the first movers, then they're locked in a kind of collective action problem. And this is perhaps the most common rationale for federal involvement in the healthcare space. The trouble is that when it comes to health reform, we've actually got decent data on whether people in fact move in response to coverage expansions. And at least when you're talking about Medicaid expansions, expansions on the low end of the income spectrum, um, we don't see people moving to take advantage of expansions. Uh, And the data suggests people actually have lots of reasons to live where they live, that they rarely move for health-related reasons, and they don't pick up stakes just to take advantage of the availability of coverage, at least not often enough to be a serious impediment on states expanding um, coverage. You know, I think the the calculus might be different if you were talking about Medicare or Medicaid, for example. Uh, Medicare, if one state were to cover everyone over the age of 65, then I think a lot of elderly people for whom health insurance is much more valuable uh, than it is for younger people and whose connection to the labor markets is much more attenuated, they may well move and create a real race to the bottom. Um, And with Medicaid, uh, the elderly on Medicaid, the same thing. Nursing home care is very expensive if one state offers it and the other state doesn't. That could plausibly attract a lot of people. But when you're talking about the Medicaid expansion, which is largely directed toward people, you know, exclusively directed toward people under the age of 65, we don't see that same kind of welfare magnet effect materialize. So I think if you're going to want a federal intervention, you've got to come up with a different, stronger justification. And, and I should be clear, my, my argument is that although the traditional justifications for federal interventions don't seem to hold a lot of water, there are no interstate externalities in play here, there's no race to the bottom, um, that arguments about protecting individuals and minority groups from discrimination don't seem to justify reform. I do think that money is a really important reason that we need federal reform here. Um, And this is often overlooked in debates over health reform. But the fact of the matter is that expanding coverage costs cash. It costs a lot of money. And the federal government is much better equipped fiscally to raise the money it needs to raise and to spend the money it needs to spend in order to expand coverage. The state's biggest problem is that they can't deficit spend. So during a recession, when lots of people lose their jobs and they're in need of health coverage for the first time, um, the states see their tax revenues plummet at exactly the moment that 
that their outlays for healthcare are going to have to go up. Well, no state can weather that kind of storm. It require them either to raise taxes or to cut spending during a recession, which is going to cause a serious financial drag on the state's economy. And so the states are understandably leery about saddling themselves with a countercyclical obligation of that magnitude. Um, and at the same time, too, for reasons we can go into, ERISA makes it very difficult for states to impose any kind of employer mandate um, that would require employers to expand their coverage options or pay a penalty. And taken together, the state's balanced budget obligations and ERISA will really systematically frustrate state efforts to expand coverage on their own. Um, the implication of all this is that we really need money from the feds, but that maybe in this health reform space, we should be more comfortable than we perhaps traditionally have been on the left um, of allowing the states to chart their own course to put that money to the use that they think would be most effective within broad limits laid out by the federal government. So do you think we've, in a sense, been cheated of some of the answers to these questions in, in that we've not had, you know, a successful Vermont plan? We know quite a lot about Massachusetts, obviously, the Colorado proposition failed. And so we we haven't really had any sort of, of those interesting sort of 1332 innovation waivers that, that would maybe have been able to answer some questions about what the states want to do. I don't know if we've been cheated. I, I suppose the way I would frame it is, you know, 1332 waivers establish an onerous set of conditions for states to, to meet if they wish to change uh, any of the ACA's regulations governing insurance. They've got to guarantee that they cover as many people and they cover as many people as expansively as the Affordable Care Act does. Um, one question that I think is worth asking is whether that kind of tight control over what states do with federal money is strictly essential. Um, I think a lot of us have a view, and it's certainly one that I share, that the uninsurance rates that we had in the country prior to the ACA were intolerable, that they were immoral, that they needed a fix. Um, at the same time, I think it's reasonable to ask whether um, states can and ought to be trusted at least a little more than we have in the Affordable Care Act to use federal money in a manner that suits their local interests perhaps better than a national solution. Now, I'm a little skeptical that states that object on principle to coverage expansions um, will choose a policy that will best serve the interests of their residents, that they'll distribute the federal money in a way that will create sustainable, viable insurance markets that will assure coverage that is uh, reasonably expansive and affordable. Um, but I'm not sure that my skepticism is reason enough to tell the states that they can't give it a shot. Um, you know, the very point, the whole point of, of federalism is that we often disagree, not only about policy, but about how to go about implementing any given policy. And, you know, I think the point of federalism is to be humble about, about the limits of what we know, what we think we know, about what we think is going to work, what we think is the appropriate course, to recognize that people who are good people have views that are antithetical to our own, um, and that they may not be unreasonable for holding those views. So to the extent that states can say, look, we've got a plan for how to spend the federal money, we object to, say, the individual mandate, or we object to the expansiveness of the essential health benefits. Um, but in our own way, we think we can achieve a coverage expansion that will work better for our residents than the Affordable Care Act's sort of solution. Um, I think they should be given more room to give that a shot. Um, and, I, and I think this as a matter of principle, I, I should say that I, I've long held to this view. I've been a big fan of state waivers. I think the experimentation that we've seen in the Medicaid program under 1115 waivers has been very promising. Um, but I also think strategically right now in this political moment, we ought to be thinking about federalism respecting solutions as a way out of 
of the political problem that we seem to find ourselves in, which is that we've got two warring political parties that have very different visions of the good. And we've got to be able to find a way somehow to move past our deep divisions. And federalism is at least one possible approach to doing so, to saying, listen, we're all in the same boat when it comes to funding coverage expansion. But within the a federal program that allocates money to expand coverage, we're going to give the states a lot of room to come up with their own distinctive solutions. I think that's an attractive approach to getting beyond the, the political quagmire we seem to find ourselves in. Is there any hope for someone like myself who is, is just a, a dollar-based skeptic? I do not see any evidence that most states are interested in funding healthcare to what I would consider to be a reasonable level, that most of the actions by the GOP seem to at least be colorable as just trying to get as much healthcare and entitlement money off the books, and that the only sort of uh, uh, really serious objections uh, come from within the health industry that is looking at at money uh, disappearing. I think that's a reasonable concern. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons that, in fact, there are good reasons for a federal solution so that we have the money in the system to expand coverage. When it comes to, you know, one way of understanding your question is, well, can we really trust the states, given that a lot of the GOP obstruction seems to be based on, you know, a desire to negate Obamacare by any means possible. And it had more to do, or at least seemed to have more to do with, at times at least, with scoring political points than it did with any principled objection to the policy on offer. And I think some part of me says, you know what, call their bluff then. You know, state governors and state representatives are answerable to their people in the same way that national representatives are as well. And I think if you were to cut the states more latitude to use federal money to come up with their own distinctive approaches to expanding coverage, I think you'd find a lot of states settling on solutions that weren't so different from what the Affordable Care Act currently prescribes. Um, And I think a lot of states that talk big in a time where their talk doesn't have a lot of consequences might back off when they're confronted with the realities of plans that simply won't work actuarially, mathematically, what you will. When it comes to, you know, fearing that the GOP just doesn't want to pony up enough money, I think that's a genuine concern. I think it's one reason to be so careful, so concerned about the American Healthcare Act's willingness to zero out all the taxes that would fund uh, any kind of replacement plan and its insistence on on making up the difference on the back of Medicaid enrollees. I think that should be fought and fought vigilant. Um, but at the same time, one has to ask, okay, well, what are you, what kinds of deals are you willing to cut at the federal level in order to sustain the funding levels that are necessary to assure near universal coverage, at least in most states? And I think one deal that, that folks on the left should, should certainly be willing to entertain is the possibility of a federalism respecting solution. You know, and I, I should say that I don't think this is an outlandish idea. Cassid, Senators Cassidy and Collins have floated a bill that to a large extent um, sort of endorses the proposal that I lay out in the Yale piece. They said they say essentially, look, we're going to retain the ACA's taxes. We're going to retain all the federal spending, but we're going to give states a new choice about how to spend it. Uh, you know, it's a health savings account, consumer directed oriented choice that more suits the interests of, you know, the current Republican majority in Congress. But they're also going to let states opt into the current ACA system. And they're also going to let states opt out altogether if they object on principle to health reform. And I think there's a lot to like about that proposal. You know, if I'm in a state, you know, I certainly wouldn't vote to adopt the health savings account approach. I certainly wouldn't vote to give up the Affordable Care Act money and, and, you know, terminate the health reform experiment altogether. Um, But at the same time, I think proper respect for state authority and state 
state prerogatives and state democracy suggests that we ought to be open to solutions that devolve more power to the states. And I want to run by you some potential affinities between this approach, Ryan Care, and some of the longer term, larger scale uh, goals, I think, of a lot of folks that are sort of in the more technocratic uh, slash progressive side of health policy. And here's how I'd run the argument. Um, if we look at the CBO score for uh, Ryan Care, one thing that Ryan has been really trumpeting is the idea that this is going to reduce the cost of premiums. But if we take a look behind the curtain, one of the reasons why it's reducing the cost of premiums is because it would allow for the sale of insurance plans, which with lower actuarial value than is allowed under the Affordable Care Act. And one of the things I'm thinking about, this, this lower actuarial value, um, folks like, I think, Peter Orzag, others uh, have criticized this, but on some level, I wonder, isn't this a backdoor way to get to their end goal of shrinking the size of healthcare as a percentage of GDP in America? Because if you imagine states over time, uh, perhaps especially the more deregulatory states, allowing um, first very low actuarial value plans, then ultimately, let's say, McDonald's-style mini-meds, um, you know, where, say, the coverage per year is capped at two or three thousand dollars a year the end goal of that may be to so reduce reduce purchasing power that um hospitals and doctors are gonna have to take less uh just because you know nobody's gonna have the money to pay the current prices so i'm wondering is that part of the theory here that essentially this sort of starve the beast theory of healthcare could be a way in which we might have two routes to reducing healthcare as the size of uh, its size as of the gdp the technocratic progressive route would go along all the lines of the program within the Affordable Care Act um, that are trying to sort of improve quality while reducing price, whereas the uh, there might be another path that would essentially be deregulating insurance to allow the actuarial value to fall to a point where there's just not the purchasing power to maintain uh, current pricing. That is is certainly interesting. A few thoughts on that. I think I think the main reason that premiums are going to drop is actually not so much that the actuarial value will of, of many of these plans will drop. That will happen to some extent. The main reason is that health insurance will be so expensive that lots of people who are not great health risks, which is to say a lot of poorer, older Americans won't be able to afford insurance at all, which means they won't oh, yes. help drive down. They, 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 that if they're not in the risk pools, we're not going to have to pay for them. And that helps keep premiums in check. On the actuarial value, I think, you know, I, I want to make a, just a small note, which is that there's a natural limit to how low the actuarial limit can, there's a legal limit to how low the actuarial limit can drop, given that there is a restriction an annual um, ceiling on the amount of out-of-pocket spending that you can have under the Affordable Care Act. And that ceiling on out-of-pocket spending would remain in place because the Republicans can't undo that ceiling through reconciliation. They'd have to do that through normal legislation, which would be subject to the filibuster. So that sets up a ceiling, or sorry, a floor on what the actuarial values could drop to. My understanding is it would still allow for more bare-bones plans than, than exist today, but that there would be still quite a bit of financial protection. We're still a long way away from the McDonald's mini-med plans. Um, But yeah, I think, look, in the long term, I think, although it's a little hard to say because the Republicans, I think, are of many minds about what it is exactly they want this bill to accomplish, I think it is safe to say that at least one of their goals is to reduce the scope of federal expenditures on health care. And they want to do that both because it entails redistribution that they object to on principle, but they also want to do it because they fear that federal spending is fueling demand that ends up driving cost increases. Um, now, that's a controversial theory about why it is that healthcare is so 
expensive, it seems that there are a lot of other reasons that don't have a lot to do with government spending. Uh, you know, take our employer-sponsored system. Um, there, we do have a tax exclusion that puts its sort of fuels demand a bit. But I think if you got rid of the tax exclusion, we'd still have very expensive health care and we'd still be spending quite a bit on it. Um, so, you know, tinkering at the margins of, you know, the uninsurance rate, which is all we're talking about here, you know, moving up, you know, 26 million people down 26 million people in a nation of 330 million, that's still not the ballgame. Um, so I think if it's a starve the beast policy, I think what, what, what really, really concerns me is that you are you are starving the beast on the backs of a very small portion of the American population. Um, you're covering everyone over the age of 65. You're covering the elderly through Medicaid who are going uh, into long-term care. Um, but we are squeezing ever more uh, those people who are self-employed, those people who are um, not offered health insurance coverage through their jobs, those people who are going to be um, excluded from state Medicaid programs, those people who are not going to be able to get health care because their you know providers won't accept uh, Medicaid patients. You know, I think it's it's an it's a pretty ugly policy to try to starve the beast by targeting those individuals. You know, my own preference would be to try to spread the pain more broadly and figure out ways to reduce spending, not only for people who are you know just coming onto the insurance market for the first time, but but really across the board. And I will note that that there's really nothing in these Republican plans that has any realistic chance at actually reducing healthcare spending on a per capita basis. You're going to reduce some government expenditures, um, and you're going to reduce some individual expenditures because some people aren't going to be able to buy insurance and are simply going to go without healthcare. Um, but that's not quite the same thing as actually reducing the pace of medical inflation. There's no serious attempt to do that in this bill. And I think that raises another problem with that sort of alternate narrative, Nick, in that certainly if you look at some of the reasons for votes in the last election, these were persons who were not in those smaller percentage categories. These were people who have group employee-sponsored coverage, who were voting against, as they thought it, Obamacare because of the way their actuarial value has been plummeting. Uh, the, the increased uh, co-pays, deductibles, and all the other uh, little ways that they've been nickel and dined. I think that trend is going to continue. Um, and so uh, more and more, it won't be that small, those smaller uh, groups that get marginalized, but all groups are going to continue to see more and more healthcare inflation. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. You know, I think the nickel and diming in the employer-sponsored market is a big reason that we are seeing so much anger directed at the healthcare system. Um, I will note that there are protections in the ACA that have done a lot to prevent people from bleeding money through cost sharing. There are limits on the amount of cost sharing that you can pay in any given year, and there are now caps on annual and lifetime limits in the ACA. None of that's going anywhere, uh, again, because you can't change those regulatory rules through reconciliation. So those protections will remain in place. But in exchange for limiting um, the hemorrhaging of money that some people, you know, the, 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 the fact that in exchange for helping uh, kind of ease the pain of the people who really got screwed under the previous system, um, it looks like some of that pain has been spread more broadly. And so instead of having one person or 10 people go bankrupt because of out-of-pocket payments or annual caps now, we're all being asked to pitch in more and increasingly more for our coverage. And I think that really pisses people off. It has nothing to do or very little to do with the Affordable Care Act. Um, and it's going to be a perennial problem. I think it, the anger will be directed at whatever political party happens to be in office and is charged with being responsible for the national health care system. And, you know, I, I, right now, at least, the political debate has not 
not uh, adequately addressed the the real drivers of healthcare spending growth. And unless and until it does, I think we're going to continue seeing employers trying to shift costs onto employees. See this kind of frustration continuing to mount. Um, I think politically, it's a you know it's it's a it's a real quandary. When you were going through the um, the traditional arguments in favor of federal intervention, um, uh, one of the ones that you you discussed and uh, basically uh, argued against overall uh, was the political pathology problem and the uh, uh, the potential for um, racism tainting some state decisions with regard to um, uh, healthcare uh, financing. Um, yet, when it comes to Medicaid and block grants and so on, uh, later in the essay, you seem to be a little more sympathetic towards that argument. Is that the case? And if so, can you can you expand a little bit? So this is the part of the argument that I think I've probably given the most thought to and, and struggled with the most. One reason that we have federal intervention in our country is because of our you know sorted racial history. And when you ask the question, why not trust the states? Well, one re- pretty resounding response is because many of the states have proven themselves systematically inattentive to the interests of minority groups. And you can tell a story kind of like that, that that might sort of have some have some resonance for healthcare. So in, in 2013, the uninsurance rate for the white population in the US, the non-elderly white population was only 13%. But for the black population, that figure was 21%. And that figure was 32% for the Latino population. So, you know, you can you can say that any kind of effort to achieve health reform is going to disproportionately benefit minority groups. And in states that are less sensitive to the interests of those minority groups, we might see them hesitating uh, because they simply don't care as much as we as a political community, a federal political community, think they should. Um, The reason I think that at the end of the day, that's not an especially good reason for federal intervention is that there are all sorts of other policy domains where state decisions also have a disparate effect on political minorities. So the most important one of these is, of course, education. So the states are vested with the authority to regulate the schools in their state. They exercise that authority with reasonably little federal involvement. Uh, We trust the states to tax their residents in a way and then to distribute the tax revenue in a way that seems best to the states, even though we know that states do so in a way that can disadvantage political minorities. Um, So you think about the policy of funding schools through local property taxes. Well, that's going to systematically help people from wealthier communities and systematically hurt people who live in historically disadvantaged communities. Yet that's not thought to be a a sufficient justification for federal intervention. Um, and, and, And the reason for that seems to be that the states wouldn't be really all that sovereign anymore if you wrested from them their authority to tax and to spend. Because any question about how to tax and how to spend is going to implicate hard questions of distributional fairness. And those questions of distributional fairness will always touch on sensitive uh, questions about minority rights. Um, And yet we still think that states' rights are important. We still think that states ought to maintain control to the extent that they can. So I I think ultimately that justification for federal health reform doesn't, it proves too much. Um, And maybe we should still be willing to tolerate some level of state involvement, even in circumstances where we might fear that some states will on occasion exercise that um, responsibility in a way that 
that's systematically inattentive to the interests of political minorities. And the next question I wanted to ask about was your post recently on the Incidental Economist about uh, the CBO score and the dismal CBO score. And uh, Secretary Price uh, responds to that by suggesting that essentially he was planning to regulate the HHS's way out of such a bad score or the government's way out by perhaps dropping essential health benefits or otherwise um, making those skimpier. And I was wondering if you could just share with our listeners sort of your responses, because I thought this was a very nuanced uh, uh, and considered post with respect to the options that are available for an HHS secretary that wants to radically alter the scope of essential health benefits. Yeah, thanks. I, I It was a fun post to write. You know, I think that the Republican plans right now, it's sort of step one is this American Health Care Act, and then they've got these vaguely defined steps two and steps three. They call them prongs two and prongs three. I I think it's a myth. I don't think they actually exist anywhere, but sort of as bullet points on some slides show that's been shown in the White House. But to the extent that we have any certainty about what these steps entail, step two looks like a package of regulatory reforms that might help drive premiums down. And the idea here is a laudable one, which is, you know, I think the Republicans say, hey, you know, like one of the problems is that health insurance is very expensive. Um, Part of the reason for that is because uh, the ACA requires insurers to cover a fairly comprehensive package of benefits. And, you know, not all consumers want that. They might prefer to buy a more streamlined set of services um, and pay less in, in premiums and bear the risk that one day they might get sick and not be able to get the kind of health care that they would ideally want. Um, if that is, in fact, what people want, uh, then maybe a policy change like that would be helpful. Uh, and if it were to be made, Congress could, of course, change the law. Uh, but but unfortunately, because of the rules governing reconciliation, it can't actually amend the essential health benefits rule through legislation, at least not without running afoul of the filibuster. So Congress can't act to um, allow insurers to cover a skimpier set of benefits. So can Secretary Price do it himself? And the answer there is, well, he's been delegated a lot of authority to flesh out the meaning of what counts as essential health benefits. And I think people have often looked at that and said, well, he's got lots of authority, so surely he can pare them back a lot. But if you look closely at the statute, he's really quite hemmed in. The statute requires the scope of the essential health benefits to be equal. And the word in the statute is equal to the scope of benefits in a typical employer plan. So in order to change the essential health benefits, Secretary Price has to be able to point to existing employer plans in the market and say, hey, employer plans, like that one over there, I I want something as skimpy as that employer plan. (laughs) And the fact is that if you actually talk to insurers and examine their offerings, insurance plans don't differ all that much in the scope of what they cover. And the reason for that is that the way that they try to hold down costs is by jiggering with their networks, by shifting cost sharing, by changing how they pay up providers. But it's really hard to rejigger your insurance contract in a way that can allow you to meaningfully exclude services. It, It turns out just to be a really difficult problem. And so most don't. It's just not how they approach cost coverage. So there aren't plans out there that are as, that are as skimpy as, as Secretary Price would like. The alternative approach would be to say, well, maybe there are plans out there that just exclude whole big categories of coverage. So prior to the ACA, you know, whole plans excluded maternity care or they excluded mental health 
health coverage, right? So, so maybe we'll just lop off those categories from the essential health benefits. But no, the, uh, the statute itself says maternity services have to be covered. It says that mental health services have to be covered. It requires those big categories to be covered. So he's really stuck. He can't actually just wave a magic wand and conjure up a typical employer plan that is skimpy enough to actually help reduce premiums overall. Uh, and he can't lop off big categories of care. So when he redefines the essential health benefits, I think he's going to discover very quickly that the savings on offer are quite trivial. You know, a few percentage points here and there, but but really not a game changer. Well, look, uh, time is uh, is uh, growing short. It's going to be soon. Uh, your uh, no doubt your your Swiss hot chocolate drink for the evening is is uh, is being cooked. Um, but just uh, one uh, last sort of uh, issue to to track on um, in last fall's uh, back to school special uh, episode sixty six. For those of you playing along at home, dear listener, um, Nick, you discussed House and Burwell and the three R's. Um, well, Burwell is now stayed. Um, Judge Sweeney of the Court of Claims has certified Health Republic Insurance against the U.S. as a class action. And then uh, just last month, we had the Moda case uh, holding the U.S. liable for $241 million in risk corridor payments. A couple of billion dollars between friends. Who's counting? Yeah, yeah. So, at incidental economist, you noted in, in rather Trumpian fashion, quote, the stakes are enormous. Huge. Huge they are. Huge indeed. Can you tell us a little bit more? about this and where you think it's all going to end up? Yeah, so the risk corridor litigation you know, boils down to a promise that the federal government made. It said, insurers, if you come and sell health plans on the exchanges and you lose your shirt, we'll, we'll give you some cash. We'll make you whole. We're going to offer you a kind of insurance policy just for the first three years, just for 2014, 15, and 16. After that, you're on your own, but we know these are untested markets. We know it's kind of a risk for you. And through uh, some appropriations shenanigans in Congress, uh, that promise was made, it was made impossible for the federal government to follow through on that promise for insurers that lost more than they expected on the exchange. Um, the reason for that is that an appropriations rider was inserted into legislation in 2014 that essentially said, hey, you only have you know so much money to pay out to these insurers. Um, and after that, the appropriation ends. So even though you promised to pay them all this money, uh, turns out not so much, um, you can't pay them. And and so the insurance companies sued and they said, look, I understand there's no appropriation to pay us through the normal funding that HHS gets for its operations, but you made us a promise. And there's a separate pot of money that's available for people who sue the federal government and for money, for money damages and prevail. And that's called the judgment fund. And we think that we are owed money. We should be able to sue, recover that, get a judgment and use the judgment fund to allow us to recover what we're owed. Um, and I think that argument, as I've explained, um, in the New England Journal of Medicine and elsewhere, I think that that article is that that argument is is correct. Um, I think the promise has been made. I believe it's enforceable in court. I believe once a judgment has been entered, the judgment fund is available to ma- pay off those judgments. Um, so far, we've had two court of claims judges weigh in on the question. One of them has quite sensibly agreed with me. That's the Moda Court. The other one has disagreed in an opinion that I think is wrong, wrong, wrong. Um, and the cases, are, the the first case, the one that ruled against the insurers, has now been appealed to the Court of Federal Claims, and the resolution of that case will govern in all of the other pending cases that have been brought by insurers for risk corridor money. And if you tally up all that they claim that they're owed and all the federal government says that they're owed, um, you're looking at total damages at the end of the day of something on the order of, we don't have a final number yet, $15 billion, which would make this some of the biggest civil litigation.
litigation um, that the federal courts have ever handled. Um, whether that $15 billion will ever be paid out is a, is a separate question and a much harder question. Although the judgment fund would be available to pay out the $15 billion, there have been bills introduced in Congress to preclude, to sew up the judgment fund, to say that the judgment fund can't make those payments, even if the insurers get a court judgment saying that they're owed the money. And you might say, well, can Congress do that? Can they just refuse to pay? And yes, the answer is is yes. They have the power over appropriations. And if they decline to make an appropriation available, the federal government cannot satisfy judgments that have been entered against it. Whether those bills will go anywhere, I think is hard to say. It's going to get caught up in the difficult politics over health reform. Because if you punish the very insurance companies upon which you depend to sell coverage to the uninsured, well, that's not a system that is going to give them a lot of confidence about, about you know, helping you out as a federal government. Um, so it's it's a complicated set of questions and a lot remains to be seen. But for now, what I can say is that the litigation is progressing. I think it is likely in the sort of the next year or so to result in a very substantial damages judgment against the US. Whether the insurers actually get paid is very much an open question. Although given the hostility toward the risk corridor program in Congress, I, I cannot say I am terribly optimistic. And that was the week in health law. I'm guessing, dear listener, that you probably already follow Nick Bagley at Nicholas underscore Bagley on Twitter and probably, like us, follow his blog posts at The Incidental Economist and Yale's Notice and Comment. But also, Nick, as you leave us, uh, you, there's a new blog that you're taking uh, a part of, I think, called Take Care. What's that about? I think I'm one of 52 commentators, so it's a, a mass blog called Take Care, and it is meant to focus on questions surrounding the president's duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. There's a lot of concern on the left that President Trump has displayed a kind of disdain for traditional legal norms. And the blog is an effort to hold him to account um, as his administration makes the decisions governing immigration or healthcare or national security or, or what you will. I am, again, only one of 52 different commentators. It's a star-studded roster of commentators. I'm sort of surprised they invited me, but I'm very happy to participate. Well, thank you for doing that. And thank you for being on the show. We post our show notes at twill.com. You can contact me at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. And Frank, where are you hanging out this week? Contact me at HealthPI on Twitter. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week. Music